So the question is, you know, like if dopamine is ruling your life and, you know, making you miserable in the process, what do you need to do? Four things. And then the four things your mother told you. But you, because of number one, your busy life, number two, your money in your pocket, and number three, your addiction, never listened to those four. But we have the data that actually demonstrates why these are the case. And so here we had this dilemma, this, this fact, this fact. I spent almost a decade researching this subject. From the Hint offices in San Francisco, I'm Kara Golden. Every aspect of your metabolic health improves. Each week, we're talking to innovators and game changers who think outside the box and tackle problems that few address. What does it really take to be unstoppable? Let's find out. Dr. Lustig, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Karen. We're very, very excited to have you. Uh, So Dr. Lustig is an American pediatric endocrinologist, I think one of the best. And uh, he's a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco, where he specializes in neuroendocrinology and childhood obesity. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, we are really, really excited today to not only talk to him about health and, and some of the things that he has talked about in the past, but also he has a new book. So the hacking of the American mind, and I would love to get deeper into sort of why you decided to write that. But first of all, so pediatric endocrinology at UCSF, a very much acclaimed person that I have sitting in front of me. I'd love to hear from you sort of how did you end up in that field and why did you decide to really, you know, pursue the pediatric endocrinology side of this? So years ago, when I decided to be a doctor, (laughs) um, I did a term paper, I guess, in high school on the hypothalamus. And that's an area of the brain at the base of the brain. It's about the size of your fingernail and it controls all the different hormone functions of the body. And then we shortly thereafter learned that a lot of the hormones control what goes on in the brain. And that just captured me. And I have been interested in this field ever since because it translates into so many different aspects of not just medicine, but society in terms of obviously neuroscience, in terms of behavior, in terms of economics, in terms of why we do what we do. And, you know, obesity was the ultimate final frontier in this field called neuroendocrinology. In 1994, we learned about a hormone called leptin. And leptin is made by your fat cells, goes to your brain, tells your brain, number one, you've had enough. And number two, you can burn energy at a normal rate because you're not starving. So people got very interested in leptin, and so did I, of course. And we did a study 20 some odd years ago demonstrating that kids who had brain tumors who became massively obese because of the damage that the tumor did, they weren't seeing their leptin. And because of that, their brain thought they were starving. And because of that, they were releasing too much of the hormone insulin. Insulin is the energy storage hormone. So these kids were storing it and not burning it. They felt terrible. They would sit on a log. Anything that interested them before now did not interest them. The parents would say things like, this is double jeopardy. My kids survived the tumor only to succumb to the treatment. 
And I was faced at the time with a whole stable of these patients having to take care of them. And so we did a early study demonstrating how this feedback pathway of leptin and the brain worked and what we could do to try to circumvent it. That not only worked, but basically opened up a whole new aspect of this field for me uh, in terms of the outputs from the brain to the rest of the body to control how fast you burn energy or store it. And that I've basically parlayed that over the last 21 years into a career. That's amazing. So obesity, so is that genetic? All the studies, the twin studies, the GWAS, general, uh, you know, the uh, genome-wide association mm -hmm. scan studies, basically say that half of obesity is genetic. However, there are a lot of genes involved. There is no one gene that predicts obesity. And if you had the changes that are associated with obesity in every one of those 39 genes that have been uh, associated, it would only add up to about 10 kilos or 22 pounds. Well, we have a whole lot bigger problem than 10 kilos. We're not 10 kilos overweight. We're 20 to 30, even to 50 kilos overweight in some cases. And so genetics do not explain this. In addition, you know, our genetic pool hasn't changed in the last 30 to 40 years, but our environment sure has. And as our environment has changed, our obesity rates have gone through the roof. And more importantly, our diabetes rates have gone through the roof four times faster. So it's not just about obesity and it's not just about genetics. It is about an environment. And the question is, what in the environment drives both weight gain and risk for diabetes? How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think, and makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Right. And, and that's where I am now. And by environment, you don't just mean trees and air, you mean? I do mean trees and air, but that clearly is not the whole the story. Whole story. <laughs> because right. countries that still have trees and air, not like ours, um, have problems with obesity and diabetes also. Basically, obesity has gone up everywhere in the world. Diabetes has gone up in every country except for 10. Interesting. So where do you see the fastest growing rate of diabetes, type 2 diabetes in the country? Mexico. Interesting. Mexico. And that's one of the reasons why they imposed 
a soda and sugar tax is because they had the highest rate of increase of diabetes of any place. Now, the place that has the highest rates of diabetes is actually Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the UAE, and Malaysia. Interesting. So why them? Yeah, why them? Very simple. Yeah. No alcohol. Interesting. But they got soft drinks like they're going out of style. Because number one, it's hot. Number two, water supply is a question mark. Right. And number three, no alcohol. And males versus females? Same. Makes no difference. Really, really interesting. And what do you think pre-diabetes, what, what do you think those rates are? I mean, I hear this constantly from friends, from people who have told me even that their children have been diagnosed with pre-diabetes. Oh, absolutely. So the diabetes rate is 9.3%. The pre-diabetes rate has been postulated to be as high as 40%. That's a lot of people. Now, not every pre-diabetic goes on to develop diabetes. Mm -hmm. That's true. And there are some studies in children, at least, that say that one-third will progress on, one-third will just stay pre-diabetic, and one-third will actually resolve. So it's not like having pre-diabetes is a death knell or you know, even the harbinger of disaster. But it begs the question, what's going on that all of these people who used to be metabolically stable and healthy, what's going on here? That's and that's what I'm interested in. Above and beyond the you know, the intake of, of sugar and sweeteners, it, do you believe like stress plays a, a role in? No question. Yeah. Stress is a cofactor in terms of this phenomenon. Uh, here's the way I like to sort of divvy this thing up. You have three fat pools in your body. You have your subcutaneous or your big butt fat. Mm-hmm. You have your visceral or your big belly fat. And third, you have your liver fat. Three. Turns out you have to fill that subcutaneous fat bucket up completely before you see metabolic changes. And that subcutaneous fat bucket is pretty malleable. In other words, you can stretch it out pretty good mm -hmm. before you start seeing metabolic changes. Now, different races have different buckets. So African-Americans have the biggest bucket, so they can gain the most weight before they start seeing metabolic pathology. Asians have the smallest bucket, and so they start showing problems with prediabetes, diabetes, um, you know, hypertension, uh, fatty liver disease at a much lower BMI, 10 BMI points lower than the African-Americans. Hmm. So the subcutaneous bucket is the bucket we measure when we stand on the scale. But if there's that much play in the system, and if you have to fill that bucket completely before you start seeing metabolic pathology, the subcutaneous fat bucket ain't the big problem. Then you go to the visceral fat or the big belly fat bucket. And it turns out that stress is a primary major possibly even the seminal driver of that belly fat, visceral fat. And we know that visceral fat is clearly associated with metabolic disease, unrelated to what happens to the subcutaneous mm -hmm. fat. Give you an example. Depression, clinical depression, causes you to lose weight. Clinical depression is a weight loser, not a weight gainer. Melancholic depression, you don't eat you lose weight, but your visceral fat goes up. And as your visceral fat goes up, 
your metabolic status gets worse. And it turns out that the reason that happens is cortisol, the stress mm -hmm. hormone, because people who are depressed are very, very cortisol uh, overloaded. It's part of the phenomenon. So interesting. So stress and cortisol drive that visceral fat bucket. But what we have learned now is that the subcutaneous fat bucket and the visceral fat bucket are minuscule compared to the liver fat bucket. And the liver fat bucket only contributes about a pound or maybe a pound and a half to your total weight. So you can't measure it on the scale. But it turns out if your liver is fatty, you are sick. And you are sick unrelated to how heavy you are. And there are certain diseases that cause liver fat, like for instance, lipodystrophy, which is a disease of HIV, in fact, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and other, uh, other problems as well. And there are genetic forms of lipodystrophy. But anything that drives that liver fat has been shown to drive metabolic disease. Mm -hmm. Now, in the old days, if you had liver fat, you were an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Alcohol was the primary driver of liver fat and was the primary driver of metabolic disease. And in the old days, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease, that was alcohol. If you saw that, that was alcohol. Turns out that's not what's going on today. What's going on today is sugar. And that's why kids are getting the same diseases as alcoholics. Fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes are now in children, but children don't drink alcohol because, alcohol, uh, because sugar is the alcohol of the child. Because the mitochondria of your liver can't tell the difference. They're metabolized exactly the same way. And when you overload your liver with sugar or with alcohol, doesn't matter which, your liver has no choice but to take the excess and turn it into liver fat. And when that liver fat gets laid down, that drives metabolic disease no matter what your weight. And that's why we have this now pandemic of type 2 diabetes in children and pre-diabetes in children is because of the liver fat. And we now have the proof. We've just done a study that was published a month ago in the journal Gastroenterology, which demonstrates that if you take the sugar out of kids' diets and substitute it with starch, not that starch is good for you, but basically they're equicaloric starch and sugar. They have the same number of calories, four calories per gram. So that total weight doesn't change. Every aspect of your metabolic health improves and within 10 days and the liver fat reverses and goes away. Interesting. So it is reversible. If it's you just stop it. Yeah. If you haven't scarred it, mm -hmm. it's then reversible. You can do it. So there's a point of no return on liver disease. Um, so if you get grade two or grade three called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and you start seeing scarring, that is not reversible. But as long as it's just liver fat and the scarring hasn't occurred, you can reverse it. So I want to talk about your book, Hacking okay. of the American Mind. So okay. how did you decide to, in your busy, busy schedule that you, that you were going to take on writing a book? So, and tell me sort of what was the, uh, what was really the core of how you decided to do that? Okay. Um, first of all, where'd I find the time? Who the hell knows? <laughs> My wife was pretty mad at me. Yeah. I mean, I got her permission to write the book before I wrote it. You know, even before I put the proposal together for uh, Penguin Random House, but it was a 
very severe two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell you, it was not fun. This, this book has been in my brain for 30 years, but we finally have enough data that it allowed me to write it. But the concept of it has been around for a while. I worked at Rockefeller University back in the 1980s. And so I knew a little bit about neuroscience. I did six years of postdoctoral work in neuroscience. And I knew about these two pathways and these two neurotransmitters that did different things. One called dopamine and one called serotonin. And I knew they were not the same. Dopamine is the pleasure or reward neurotransmitter. So it's the thing that goes up in your brain that tells you you like something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I like, like it a little too much. But dopamine is excitatory. In other words, when it binds to its receptor on the next neuron, it excites it. The problem is that when you excite a neuron too often and too much, it dies. It's called excitotoxicity. It's one of the reasons people got real upset about monosodium glutamate because glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter as well and causes cell damage. We now know that you get a hit, you get a rush, and the receptors go down. Well, that means the next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush because there are fewer receptors. And if there are fewer receptors, there's less ability to transduce a signal. So that means you try to occupy more of those receptors. And then the receptors go down and then you get a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. So that's a phenomenon we know in science called tolerance. And dopamine exerts tolerance. And many neurotransmitters and many hormones downregulate their own receptor. The problem is when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Here's the key. Serotonin is the contentment neurotransmitter, the one that basically says, hey, Zen, all's right with the world. Dopamine is, this feels good, I want more. Serotonin is, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. Two different phenomena, two different feelings, two different pathways, two different neurotransmitters. Turns out serotonin is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it doesn't downregulate its own receptor. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. Now, I knew this 30 years ago, but the neuroimaging had not caught up. And then something happened in 2014 that made me write this book. I was at psychiatry, I was getting psychiatry grand rounds at a medical school here in the United States. And as part of my tour, you know, being at this, you know, visiting professor at this medical school, they took me on a tour of the outpatient psych facility. And the woman who ran it was a recovering drug addict. And she was telling me about her journey. And she was clean and she was doing great. And I was very pleased for her. But she said something that really sort of caught my interest. She said, when I was shooting up, I was happy. What my new life has done is given me pleasure. And I thought to myself, wait a second, that's exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Her shooting up gave her pleasure because that was dopamine. And her new life of contentment is the happiness. But she got it wrong. 
I thought to myself, how many people get it wrong? This was 2014. 2014. And then I got home and I was talking to my sister-in-law. And she used to work for Pillsbury, which is now General Mills in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And she used to run their help desk. And she would take the phone calls from, you know, people whose popping fresh dough, you know, was had icicles in them or, you know, found grit in, you know, their, uh, you know, crescent rolls or whatever, you know, that was her job. But they disbanded when General Mills bought Pillsbury back in 2001. But you stayed friends with all of these people and they had a gourmet club. And they recently went, you know, had their gourmet club once a year. And one of the other members of the club who had had bariatric surgery because of her massive obesity and her metabolic disease said to my sister-in-law, you stay so nice and thin. How do you do that? And my sister-in-law said to her, I only eat when I'm hungry. She says, the other woman says, hungry? Eating is not about hunger. Eating is about happiness. And I thought to myself, oh my God, of course. Well, I knew that because I take care of obese kids. But if this is a sort of mantra that's going on throughout our society, that the things that cause pleasure, the things that drive dopamine, are being misinterpreted as things that actually provide happiness, then this is a basically a breakdown in society, in, you know, in culture. This is baked in, as it were. And the only way to deal with it is to expose it. And the data on the neuroimaging studies of what goes on in the brain were now available. And so I wrote the book. Interesting. And I'm sure you talk about other cases. So beyond, you know, the one that sort of helped you develop it, what was sort of the most interesting beyond that that you saw just in sort of everyday life? That Well, well I lived it. I lived it because my mother was not a very happy person, you know, going on, back a long way. Mm -hmm. um, she had moments of pleasure. She believed money was the route to happiness mm -hmm. and she was good at getting it and she was also good at spending it but it never made her happy. And I thought about her and I thought about people who do their best to amass money, including some people that are, shall we say, prominent in society now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, are these people ever happy? And they're not. And it became very clear to me that, you know, this is a disconnect. And part of the reason for the disconnect is because we're told by society, by corporations, by our government, that that which... Uh, gives us pleasure is really happiness. Mm -hmm. And if you think that you can buy happiness, you're going to spend more. And that's what we're doing. And the problem is, as we spend more, we have become most decidedly unhappy. And all I have to do is point to the addiction crisis and the depression crisis to demonstrate how true that is. Yeah, absolutely. And then you also talk about just becoming prey to these industries. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, when I talk about addiction to people too, you look at sort of the big businesses that are beyond, behind addiction, not only in, you know, the soda industries and the food no. industries, but the alcohol industries. And Turns out, if you look at U.S. GDP, and by the way, GDP is part of the problem, and we can talk about the economics of GDP and why it's a problem. But um, if you look at the 10 
products that America makes that contribute to GDP, the top 10, five of them are hedonic substances. What are those? Uh, so roughly gasoline, sugar, <laughs> um, coffee, there are a bunch. You know, our entire economy is basically based built on that. Built on the concept of, you know, hedonic substances driving consumption and therefore driving profit. And the question is, is that okay? Is that a good thing to do? And I'm going to make the argument that uh, no, it's not. It's not a good thing to do at all. Well, and how do we reverse that, right? So I just I think we've grown into we've grown into be a society built on more more is more, right? More right. More, is more. more is more better, is more, more is more. More is more, right? right? And Hint is a beverage company, but I said, you know, people are addicted to carrying something around with them, whether it's a bottle of water or a bottle of soda, definitely a bottle of water or a bottle of hint is better than a bottle of soda. But, you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't be even addicted to walking out the door with our bottle every right. day. Right. But right. the question is, if you're going to carry a bottle, what should be in it? And the answer is um, that which keeps you healthy and hydrated. Yep. The problem is the food industry doesn't want that. The food industry actually wants you to be unhealthy and dehydrated, which is why they sell you caffeine-containing sugar-laden beverages, because caffeine is a diuretic. So when you take on caffeine, you lose water, making you thirstier. In addition, there's salt in them, which of course makes you thirstier yet again. And so why is there so much sugar? Well, to hide the salt. And of course, because it's hedonic and addictive itself, which then, of course, gets you to drink the next one. And they don't want you to drink eight ounces. They want you to drink 20. So they bottle it very specifically to keep you coming back. This is a unfortunately well-worn and well-researched strategy, business strategy on their part. You know, they're not going to change it. The only person who can change it is you. And the thing is, you can't change it if you don't know what's happening. And just becoming more aware of everything well, you're buying and what it's potentially doing. And yeah, absolutely. Right. So the question is, you know, like if dopamine is ruling your life mm -hmm. and, you know, making you miserable in the process because of tolerance, what do you need to do? Well, you have to up your serotonin. That's the thing to do. You have to get your serotonin system working right. So what drives up serotonin? Four things, and they're the four things your mother told you. But you, because of number one, your busy life, number two, your uh, you know money in your pocket, and number three, your addiction, never listened to those four. Mm -hmm. But we have the data that actually demonstrates why these are the case. They're the four C's. First, connect. Now, what does that mean, connect? Does it mean Facebook? Because that's how people connect today. Turns out Facebook actually drives unhappiness, drives depression, it drives dopamine. Hmm. And it actually tamps down serotonin. It does exactly the opposite of what you want it to do. Because it's not real connection. You, how do you connect with someone named anonymous? Turns out connection means face-to-face, -face, interpersonal connection. You actually have to see the person. You can't even hear the voice. You have to see the person because you're reading the face. They're reading your face. And there's a 
pathway, there's a system of neurons in your brain called mirror neurons that are absolutely essential for being able to generate empathy. And if you don't generate empathy, you don't generate serotonin. So there's no contentment without empathy. And there's no empathy without face-to-face facial recognition connection. So just getting outside and where people are present and, and, you know, Absolutely. talking or just meeting people is, is one of the C's. What's the second? So, so social connection, yep. real social yeah, connection. Real and religion social. can serve that purpose or, you know, uh, clubs or, uh, you know, other social venues where you have interpersonal people. interaction. People. Yeah. Okay. So that's number one, connect. Number two, contribute. Now. There are two ways to contribute. You can contribute to yourself, like salary, like making money, or contribute to others. It turns out that in order to generate serotonin, you have to contribute to others. So salary doesn't work. It has to be beyond yourself. It has to be contributing to some social venue or cause. The people who are happy are the people who are doing something for others. That can be with their money, so they can do it with philanthropy, they can do it with volunteerism, they can do it with their time, they can do it you know, very specifically, they can do it in their jobs. There are w- different ways to do it, but if it's purely for your own personal self-benefit or selfishness, it does not generate serotonin. So contribute. Three, cope. So cope means sleep, mindfulness, exercise. Turns out we do everything we can to destroy all three of those because we have screens which keep us from sleeping. Just having charging your phone in your room while you're, you know, when you go to sleep reduces your total sleep by 28 minutes Hmm. just by charging it in your room. In addition, studies have now been shown where if you're taking a test, if your phone is on the table, it takes you three times longer to accomplish finishing the test. You haven't turned it on. It's just there. So put the phone out in the other room. Absolutely. Number two, mindfulness. We pride ourselves on multitasking and we prize the people who do it. Turns out only 2.5% of the population can do it effectively. Everybody else is unitasking and basically going from one thing to another. And what that does is it drives up cortisol, which drives up visceral fat, which Mm. drives up metabolic disease, which downregulates serotonin because uh, cortisol inhibits the serotonin receptor. So multitasking turns out to be not so good for you, Mm. but it's what's prized. Right. So it's baked in, as it were. So it's a problem. And then finally, exercise. And it turns out exercise has benefits of its own, having nothing to do with calories, having nothing to do with um, uh, even metabolic health. It has to do with you know, serotonin. It actually drives up serotonin by itself. So there are a lot of reasons to do those three things. So that's coping. And then finally, number four, the big kahuna, cook. Interesting. For yourself. Yeah. Interesting. For yourself or for your, and for your family. Because only you know what went into the food you cooked. Okay. So it's not the pleasure of cooking. It's the no. actual. Well, it's the, it's the social 
right. aspect of it, the fact that you're sitting down with your family. And also, there are three items in our diet that impact serotonin directly. First one, tryptophan, which is the precursor of serotonin. So it turns out it's the rarest amino acid in our diet. So you have to eat foods that are high in tryptophan, which is fish. Number two, fructose. Now, fructose doesn't have serotonin. Fructose depletes serotonin. And by the way, fructose ups your dopamine. And since dopamine downregulates serotonin, as we talked about, fructose is a major problem. Mm -hmm. So the more sugar in your diet, the worse off you are. And then finally, number three, omega-3 fatty acids. So omega-3 fatty acids are what you get in marine uh, fish. You know, and the thing is that people think if they eat salmon, they're going to get omega-3s. And they should get omega-3s. It depends on where the salmon came from. If it came from the ocean, yes, because the salmon ate the algae. Turned out the algae made the omega-3s. The fish eat the algae. We eat the fish. We get it third hand. Fish don't make omega-3s. They eat omega-3s. But farmed fish eat corn. That's omega-6s. Omega-6s are pro-inflammatory and don't contribute to omega-3s. Why are omega-3s important? Well, they increase neuronal distensibility. They allow neurons to regain their shape when they're compressed. And neurons are compressed all the time because fluid changes inside the brain happen all the time. They are anti-inflammatory. They are the um, precursors of EPA and DHA, two essential fatty acids that are necessary for myelin, for for neurotransmission, and you get them from fish. Or, uh, salmon and flax are like the two top things. And if you don't eat fish, what? How much should you take? Like on well, so a, a gram of fish oil twice a day would probably be a good idea. You okay. know, but you have to make sure that the fish oil is made from wild fish, not from farmed fish. I've heard that so you as have, well. So you have to read the label. So not every uh, fish oil is the same as every other fish oil. Yeah, quality. Quality matters. So. There they are, the four C's. Connect, contribute, cope, and cook. And these are all things your mother told you or grandmother told you. But you didn't stop to think about why those would be the case because, you know, you were too busy making your second million or, you know, um, you know having that slice of pizza at the corner you know, store or, you know, um, uh, binging on Netflix or... Uh, yeah. Well, sadly, Whatever. I think we all, you know, the older we get to that we find, we look back on life and say we were on in autopilot, right? And I think that this is just another example. Absolutely. Where, but I think there's so many people today who are really trying to reverse some of those things and actually stop for a minute and think and and do things that are actually going to, for the rest of their life, be you know, part of their life. So well, this is awesome. Indeed, it has. To, but the thing is, all of those things have to be conscious. And they can't be conscious if you don't understand them. Mm -hmm. So you have to bring them to the front of your brain. And the thing is, the corporations and the government, you know, have done their level best to bury them. Mm -hmm. So until you understand the problem, you can't fix the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, the data are the data. And this book is completely science-based. It's you know, you know, driven by science. Uh, but when you understand the science, then you understand the role it plays in the social argument. And that's what this book is: is popular science meeting social criticism.
Interesting. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lustig. I really, really appreciate it. Well, so, thank you, Kara. Yeah, My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Unstoppable. If you like what you heard, please help spread the word and leave us a review. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Please talk to me at karagolden.com. Until next time, be unstoppable. Addictive nature of modern food. Nutrition is important. Obesity and diabetes epidemic.